Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. The title for today's sermon is Like Lipstick on a Pig. How many of you have heard that, that saying before? Many of you, all right? It conjures up an image something like this. I posted this on Facebook and I asked... Um, what might that have to do with Mark chapter 7? And all I got was one person with a question mark is nobody really had any idea. Well, what it means, that saying like lipstick on a pig, is that you've tried to dress up the outside and to cover up the inside. But at the end of the day, no matter how much lipstick you use, what is true? Still a pig. It's still a pig. Now you may wonder, well, what might that have to do with this sermon and how might that relate to us spiritually? Well, here it is. No matter how much we try to dress ourselves up, and we do try, don't we? With our good behavior on the outside, we are still sinful on the inside. Let me say that again. No matter how much we try to dress ourselves up with good behavior on the outside, we are still sinful on the inside. In fact, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the prophet said it like this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the heart, it's not just sick. What is it? Desperately sick. And so here's what that means. Little riddle. We are not sinners because we sin. We are not sinners because we sin. That, that puts that focus on the outside, just like we've been talking about, on our external behavior, as if sin is something out there, and therefore it's addressed by simply our behavior, by staying away from certain things. The Bible actually teaches something else, and this is what it teaches. The Bible says we sin because we are sinners. You see the difference? We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, which puts the focus on the inside, on the condition of our hearts. For you see, the basic problem of humanity, it's not what we do, but rather what we are. And what we are is wretchedly sinful. In contrast to the popular thinking of the day, which says, oh, human beings are inherently good. We are basically good. Again, the Bible says opposite. And King David said it like this. King David, you know, a guy who had his issues, but of of all people that walked the earth, you think, well, he was a righteous guy. He did a lot of good things. But he says in Psalm 51, 5, for I was born a sinner. Born a sinner. Before he ever did anything, he was a sinner. From the moment my mother conceived me. And so to try to address our behavior without addressing the heart is nothing more than putting lipstick on a pig. And if you remember from the sermon a few weeks ago, Mark 7, 1 through 13, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, this is what they were guilty of. This is what they did. They focused on outward behavior. In the previous passage, what was the outward behavior they were focused on? Right? It was the ceremonial washing of hands and how they got after Jesus' disciples because they didn't do that man-made 
order of ceremonial washing of hands, that thing that was not commanded in the scripture, but only in their man-made tradition. And the application from that sermon, just so that we can review quickly, is don't be a Pharisee. Don't be like them. Instead, number one, compare yourself to God's standard and not to that of others. Because if we compare ourselves to others, we're always going to feel rather self-righteous. Like, well, I'm not as bad as they are, but others aren't the standard. God is. Number two, trust in God's grace and not your behavior because no matter how hard you try to be good, to be good enough, you will never be good enough. And number three, live by God's word and not by tradition. We all have our own man-made traditions that we uphold and say this is really... And and there's nothing wrong with tradition except when tradition becomes equivalent to or even surpasses Scripture. Scripture. Well, Jesus continues this lesson today in verses 14 through 23. And so would you please stand with me as I read the text? We do this out of uh, respect and reverence for the very word of God that we are so blessed and gifted to have. Mark 7, 14 through 23 says this, And Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, There's an important lesson here for us today, and I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would penetrate our hearts with that lesson, that again, we would come to see ourselves for who we really are, which number one is as wretched sinners, but we would also see the potential of who we can be through Jesus Christ and his resurrection power at work to transform us. So God, where we have clung to our own traditions, our own trust in our external behavior, God, strip those things away and make us humble and ready to receive your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We see that the text today really breaks down into two main parts. The first part is Jesus makes a declaration in verses 14 through 16. And then he gives a more detailed explanation to his disciples in verses 17 through 23. So let's look at the first of these, the declaration in verses 14 through 16. And if we look at verse 14, it begins this way. He says, and he he called the people to him again. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. So that word again tells us what? It tells us this is part two. Part two of the lesson it is the continuation of the teaching in verses 1 through 13. So notice that this lesson is so important to Jesus that he covers it twice. And so that ought to tell us something, right? If Jesus says something once, well, you know it's important and we better listen. But if he says it twice, 
Well, you really better pay attention to it. And so with this in mind, uh, commentator Daniel Aiken said this, this is one of the most critically important spiritual lessons in the whole Word of God. That's a powerful thing to say, isn't it? One of the most critically important spiritual lessons in the whole Word of God. Similarly, commentator William Barclay said, although it may not seem so now, and it may not seem to you yet, this passage, when it was first spoken was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. Wow. That's another very bold statement about this text. Well, we need to unlock and unpack what was so revolutionary about it. So let's continue with verse 15, where Jesus teaches. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what? defile him. So once again, the Jews of that day, especially the religious authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees, they viewed sin to be something external, outside the person. And so if that's true, then the remedy for sin is just to stay away from it. Just to stay. And if you succeed in staying away from it, you will succeed in being a righteous person. One key example of this was the Jewish dietary laws from Leviticus chapter 11, in which foods were labeled as either clean or unclean. Where are my shrimp people here today? You love you some shrimp, right? You would not have fared well as a Jew in that day, would you? Um, Because shrimp were among the foods that were considered unclean. And so the Jews were commanded to stay away from the unclean because that was the measure of righteousness, to stay away from the sin on the outside, and then you will be righteous, supposedly. Now, now we might ask, as you say, that, that whole thing, why did, why did God give the Jews laws regarding food? That seems kind of weird. Well, let me give you three, at least three reasons for this. Number one, interestingly, he did it for their health. So see, if you look at the Jewish dietary instructions that God gave to them, there's actually a lot of practical wisdom in it. Uh, many of the forbidden foods of that time were scavenger animals that fed on dead bodies. They didn't have food processing like we do today. They didn't have refrigeration. And so in an effort to head off in disease, which could be transmitted, one of the instructions that God gave to them was to stay away from certain kinds of animals that carried disease and would then carry disease to people. So that was for their health. Number two, he did it for their identity. For their identity. You see, the way the Jews ate would be one means of distinguishing them from all the other nations to to show that this is a different kind of people. These are special people. These are God's chosen people. And so um, Jews were forbidden to eat pork in part because pigs were a common sacrifice in pagan religions. And so to avoid association with that, pork was off limits for Jews. And this served to help establish their identities as God's special people who were different than other people. And then number three, he did it for teaching. For teaching. Teaching what? Well, the dietary laws were meant to teach and to contrast between what is pure and what is impure, between righteousness and sin. But listen carefully. This is where they lost it. We got to make sure we don't lose it too. They were meant to be signs pointing to a greater reality and not the reality itself. And unfortunately, what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day, they made the Jewish dietary laws the destination rather than the signs to the destination. And who or what was the destination? Jesus. Jesus was 
the destination. And so at the end of the day, adherence to these external laws became for them the measure of a person's righteousness. The better you kept the rules and the laws and the man-made regulations, well, the more righteous you were. But they also ignored the deeper issue of the heart. Because as we've seen, the Bible teaches that sin is primarily inward. And so what they did was exceedingly dangerous. Why? Well, because it breeds, it fosters self-righteousness. You start feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, I stayed away from pork today. Look how good I am. And when you start to feel pretty good about how good you are and how you're not sinful, guess what? You don't recognize your need for a Savior. And that is the greatest tragedy of them all, is it not? On to verse 16, which says nothing. It says nothing. If you were holding an English Standard Version or an NIV, there is no verse 16. Do you see that? Did you notice that? How many of you have a King James? Okay, Um, it does have a verse 16, doesn't it? What is going on here? What does it say in verse 16, Steve? It says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so King James, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. But most modern translations don't have that verse. Why? What is going on there? Here's the issue, not to pick on the King James. I know many of you grew up, love the King James. It's what you memorized. It's what you have, and it's great. However, over time, English, the King James is an old translation. Over time, we've unearthed more biblical manuscripts, more and better biblical manuscripts. And in those more and better manuscripts, verse 16, not there. Not there. And so apparently at some point in history, as manuscripts were being copied, um, there was some scribe in the manuscripts that led to the KJV and some other older translations that that scribe inserted this saying. Now, it's not a problem. It's not anything that's theologically inaccurate. It's just not in the older and better manuscripts. Now, some of you may say, aha, the Bible has errors in it. It is unreliable. But I would contend that examples like this show us just the opposite. It shows, now what do I mean by that? Well, the fact that we have accumulated so much manuscript evidence that allows us to determine things like this actually speaks to the reliability of the Bible and not to its unreliability. We are able to determine with a high degree of certainty what should be in the Bible and what should not be. So um, rather than to say, oh, this is evidence of error, I say it's evidence of reliability because we can identify these kinds of things. Well, let's move on to the second section of the teaching then. Now with verse 17, Jesus gives an explanation to his disciples. He's he's given this revolutionary teaching to the crowd, but now he's going to funnel it down to his direct followers. And verse 17 says, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Now let's set it geographically. This is probably up in Capernaum at Peter's house, which served as their home base during their Galilean ministry. And what I really need you to do right now is to put yourself in the sandals of the disciples. Think like a disciple for a moment. At this point in their development, their education, what is their religious background? They're Jews, right? So what have they been taught all their lives? 
All those things that we're just talking about, right? They've been taught the importance of the external laws and of man-made tradition and of those things being at least on par with, if not greater than the scriptures. They've been taught the, that the dietary laws, they are the destination and not merely the signs pointing to the destination. This has been ingrained in them all of their lives. And so don't underestimate just how revolutionary this teaching of Jesus was for them. And as we're going to see right here, they're struggling with it. They don't get it because it's so different than what they had been taught to this point. And so they have many questions for Jesus, to which Jesus replied in verse 18, Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Now that should sting them because when he says you also, with whom is he lumping the disciples? with the scribes and Pharisees who he has just rebuked. In essence, Jesus is saying, hey, how long have you guys been with me and I've been teaching you and you're still not getting it? And, and here's what should get our attention. It's clear that not even Peter, the apostle Peter, Cephas himself, he didn't get this on this day and for many days after. How do we know? Well, if we were to fast forward to Acts chapter 10, and as you know in your, your Bible development, Acts 10 is quite some time after what we're reading here in Mark 7. Peter had a vision. And as it says in Acts chapter 10 verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. So again, this is quite some time after Mark chapter 7, even after the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, even after Pentecost, and yet Peter is still struggling to make sense of this revolutionary teaching. The dietary laws are not the destination. They are the signs pointing to the destination, which is fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Peter's still living like one of the scribes and Pharisees. And then further, you might recall as I'm, I'm kind of jogging your memories, Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has an encounter with Peter. Was it a friendly encounter? It was not. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. So when push came to shove, again, this is long after Mark chapter 7, Peter defaulted to his upbringing to Jewish peer pressure about the externals. And he behaved just like the scribes and the Pharisees, um, which caused the apostle Paul to publicly confront the apostle Peter and his hypocrisy. So again, we, we can see the struggle that even the apostles had with this teaching and why it was so revolutionary for them. Well, Jesus continues the explanation of the second half in the second half of verse 18. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Now we, we'd probably need to define the heart here for a moment. The heart in this context, as you know, it's not that muscle that pumps blood throughout our bodies. Rather here, Heart means the center of one's being. It includes the mind, the emotions, the will. It is our true inner self. 
the Scriptures command us to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's what's supposed to matter most to us is loving God most above all else. But for the Jews of that day, what mattered most was not the heart, but the what? The stomach. See the contrast that Jesus is making and how ridiculous it sounds when you put it in those contexts? The, 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 the Scriptures say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, but they're stuck on what they're putting in their stomach. It just kind of shows the contrast of how misguided they really were. The external rather than the internal, which in retrospect caused Mark to write something truly earth-shattering in verse 19. He, Mark writes, thus he declared all foods clean. Now again, we Gentiles have no appreciation for just how revolutionary this was to the Jews of the day, including Jesus' disciples. It, it, seems, it seems like Jesus was creating something altogether brand new, doesn't it? Which in fact, as we know, he was. Jesus is creating a new people known as the church, made, not, made up not of just Jews, but also of us, Gentiles. And there would be, for this people, a new covenant in which all those laws, rules, and signs of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, would be fulfilled in Jesus himself. All of which probably helps us to now better appreciate and understand that Barclay quote from earlier when it said, although it may not seem so now, this passage when it was first spoken was well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament because it really highlights the difference between old and new covenant. And it helps us to understand why the Jews struggled with it so very much. See, they, they had also learned to despise the Gentiles as being less than, of being impure. Um, and they had viewed those Old Testament laws as the destination rather than merely the signs pointing to the destination. And now, with the teaching of Jesus, their whole faulty religious paradigm that they took so much pride in was crumbling. It was falling apart. And they didn't like it. Well, Jesus continued the teaching in verse 20. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Why? Because it originates in the heart, and the problem is the heart. Again, we sin because we are sinners. We, left to ourselves, are a bad tree that bears what kind of fruit? Bad fruit. And Jesus goes on to illustrate this bad fruit in verse 21 with that long list. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. J.C. Ryle puts it in perspective. He's another commentator, pastor. He says, our original sinfulness and natural inclination to evil are seldom sufficiently considered. The wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. That's a grim picture, isn't it? The gospel is supposed to be good news, and all I'm doing is giving you bad news today. Sin is not something outside us. I keep 
keep beating that drum because we got to get it right. It is inside us. It is a terminal disease. And it raises the question then, let's move into application. How should we then live? Well, let me ask you this question. When you are sick with some kind of disease, what do you do? You go to the doctor. Well, you, you pray. I think that's absolutely appropriate. But we also do what God has gifted us with, which is medical technology and help. We go to the physician. We go to the physician to get an accurate diagnosis. And so it is for us spiritually. We must go to the great physician. And number one, we must get an accurate diagnosis. And the accurate diagnosis of our condition, as we have seen, is that we have heart disease. Remember those words of Jeremiah 17, 9 from earlier? He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're terminal. We're desperately sick. There is no hope for our survival. We are sick to the point that you can't fix it. No matter how much you try to be good, no attempts at self-reformation, of trying harder, of turning over a new leaf, of making New Year's resolutions, none of these things are going to heal your desperately sin-sick heart. Only the great physician can do that. Which leads to application point number two, which is get the right treatment, which is a heart transplant. If our hearts are so sick, they are so desperately ill that we can't fix them, we need a heart transplant. The only hope that we have is to receive a brand new heart. And guess what? God, the great physician, stands by to do just that. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this. God says, I will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here again, bad tree bears bad fruit. Good tree with good heart bears good fruit. There it is. The treatment that we've been looking for that we so desperately need. The only solution for our sin-sick hearts is God giving us a brand new heart. Jesus told Nicodemus it was like what? Being born again. Being born again. Becoming a brand new person. And so, and here's where we need, we must recover something of the supernatural nature of what it means to become a Christian. It is not just raising a hand. It is not just breathing a prayer, but there is a supernatural component that supersedes us just making a decision where God comes in by the power of his Holy Spirit, gives us a new heart and makes us altogether new. How does this happen? We receive a new heart when we surrender our sin-sick heart and completely place our trust in the great physician. Let me say that again. We receive a new heart when we surrender our sin-sick heart, when we give up and say, I can't fix it, no matter how hard I try to be good, to be outwardly good things, it doesn't address the heart, I'm done with that, I must surrender my sin-sick heart and completely place my trust in the great physician who gives us the new heart. And when that happens, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, guess what? He's a new creation. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what baptism is all about. 
Baptism is that picture of what's happening here. It is the picture of our connection to Jesus in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. As Jesus was raised to life, we too are raised to new life in Him with a brand new heart, which leads to application point number three. Get busy with rehab. How many of you have been through cardiac rehab? It's important, isn't it? Get busy with rehab, which is our heart sanctification. Some of you have had physical heart surgery, and you can attest to the importance of cardiac rehab. There are exercises and disciplines that are necessary for your physical health, and the same is true for us spiritually. There are exercises and disciplines that are necessary for our spiritual health, our spiritual growth and development. And accordingly, 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. Training implies discipline and structure, does it not? And we, we call this discipline discipleship. You know, a lot of this, you know, sometimes people come to me and say, you know what, I'm not really into those structured spiritual disciplines. I just want to have an organic relationship with God. It's like, you know what, that's not how it works. If you've been a coach or you've been an athlete, you know that we don't just leave athletes to themselves. If we do, they'll never become all that they could be or all that they should be. The same is true for us spiritually. We need the structure. We need the disciplines to become all that God intends for us to be. And so we as a church, we have a very clear plan for your cardiac rehab, for the, the fostering the sanctification of your heart. We call these discipleship groups. And they include the cardiac exercises. I'm not sure if you can read that or not. I clipped it. Weekly disciplines of scripture memory, of Bible reading, of journaling what we read in the scriptures, of accountability and prayer and meeting weekly with people to hold you accountable and to spur you on to love and good works. And the fruit of that, the result are the marks of a disciple. We become missional, we become accountable, reproducible, communal, and scriptural. And so as we approach the fall, we want to form a bunch of new discipleship groups. And if that's of interest to you, and I hope it is, you know, please contact us in the church office and we will help to make that happen. It is so critically important. All of this designed to help you grow in your heart sanctification. And so how should we then live? Number one, get an accurate diagnosis, which is that we are all dying of heart disease. Number two, get the right treatment, which is the heart transplant that only the great physician can perform. And number three, commit yourself to rehab, which is heart sanctification, because anything else is merely putting lipstick on a pig, trying to clean up the outside to make it look good, to try to be righteous, to try to be good when the real issue is sin on the inside. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to fall into the, the same temptations that the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all that they influenced. It's so easy for us to fall into the same, to, to just subscribe to a bunch of rules and to do the external, the outside, and to try to clean ourselves up, make ourselves look good, make ourselves feel better, when really our, our problem is so, so much deeper. God, we need that heart transplant. And so if there's anyone here today who is sensing that, that movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives, their hearts are starting to beat a little faster, a little harder, and they sense that, I need that. 
God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. God, for those of us who have been in the faith for quite some time, but we've maybe been on autopilot, we've been neglectful, we, we haven't been intentional, God, would you do a fresh work in us? Our hearts, while they're new, we haven't developed them to be all that they could be and all that they should be in you. God, I pray that you'd prick somebody's heart today and say, hey, it's time, it's go time. Time's too short. Too much for you to do. Too much impact for the kingdom. So God, as, as Beth talked about in her testimony of distractions, God, we reject those distractions. We reject those things that get in our way of being and doing all that we could and should be in the, the, the spiritual disciplines that help to grow our hearts. God, make us like Jesus, we pray today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.